Joel Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we are speaking with Jeffrey Smith, assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at University of Texas, Austin, and a man who knows a thing or two about Valentinos, Valentinianism, and all things Valentine-like. I'm glad we're getting this episode up in time for Valentine's Day. And you have a book coming out, Jeff called Valentinian Christianity Texts and Translations, which is going to be a source book for anyone who wants to get seriously into this stuff in that you're presenting, I'm going to assume, just about every relevant document from antiquity. Yeah, I mean, what I was able to fit into the book is all the sources written by Valentinians themselves. Okay, so not and all the heresiological so, stuff necessarily. No, that, that there, I, I have been thinking about doing a, a, a second volume with the testimonia, but that would be a massive volume, as, as you know. Mm. Well, we're lucky to have so much from Valentinians, as opposed to Basilides, that we talked about in the last episode, where it's only heresiological, basically, that we have to work right. with, and not even very much of that. Out with University of California Press in 2020. People want to check that out. Jeff, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm really excited. So, if you have to introduce Valentinos to a very curious person who knows absolutely nothing about him. How would you introduce him? Well, uh, scholars also know very little about him, uh, but from what we can glean from the reliable parts of the reports about him, it seems like he may have been born and educated in Egypt, um, maybe somewhere in the Nile Delta region, and would have received a fantastic education, judging by the quality of his, his writing and the depth of his theological and philosophical thought. And uh, at some point, he traveled to Rome, we think sometime in the 130s, where he decided to try his hand at the, the big stage and try and uh, teach his version of Christianity in the big city. And this was actually pretty common in, this, in the middle of the second century. We have Justin Martyr, Justin the Philosopher, also traveling to Rome about the same time to, to present his ideas and try and get a gathering. Marcion, uh, he leaves the Black Sea region and comes to Rome, and, and he has uh, the opportunity to, to bankroll his own church and, and, and pitch his own audacious theology there. And I think, so Valentinus seemed to have done that. We know that he wrote quite a bit. He wrote um, uh, homilies, uh, so sermons, he wrote letters, uh, he wrote a psalm book, which actually was quite influential, and uh, he garnered quite a bit of a following. There is this report that comes from Tertullian, uh, who was not a fan of Valentinus, but nonetheless had to ad admit that, that Valentinus was considered to be a candidate for the Bishop of Rome, but he lost out, uh, he didn't get the position just because the um, the, the other candidate was actually a confessor, somebody who had stayed faithful to Christ in the time of persecution, which was, you know, it's, it's a martyr that didn't die, and that gives you a superstar status. Right. Um, and, maybe we'll uh, return to that testimony of Tertullian, because he also says Valentinus founded his hideous, vile heresy. It was basically sour grapes for not getting elected bishop. Right. Which right, exactly. one finds which, it hard to credit. <laughs> It, yes, but it does show us that Tertullian is attempting to reconcile the fact that uh, that that Valentinus was in good standing in the Roman Church while he was there, but then came to be viewed as a heretic. So I think he uses that 
moment as that sort of turning point in Valentinus's thinking. But uh, but I think what it tells us is that Valentinus was actually in good standing in the Roman community while he was there. Okay. Um, now, if we're going to date him, would we be something like roughly the beginning of the second century he's born and then he yeah. dies sometime around 160? Is that more or less right? Maybe. Uh all we really know for sure, I mean, I don't even think we know this for sure, but is that he he comes to Rome in the 130s and he disappears around the late 50s, around 160, something like that. And so from there, you have to figure out how long did it take for him to mature theologically and decide that he's going to leave Egypt and, and go to Rome. So yeah, I think if we say 100 to 160, uh, with the tenure in Rome being in the 130s to 160, I think that's about right. Brilliant. Now, the guy wrote a lot, as you said, and I'd love to go return to that that point and talk about his writings. But before we do that, he's interesting because he made a really big splash, didn't he? Like he was really influential in his day and after his day among yeah, absolutely. Christians. So unlike our man Basilides, who who definitely made a splash, and there were Basilideans, um, they were pretty much. Well, nothing got copied. No, no works survive. I mean, maybe it's partly only luck that works of Valentina survive because of them being included in the the horde at Nag Hammadi. But mm. um, I kind of feel like Basilides was maybe on a similar trajectory to Valentinus in some ways, but just was successfully stamped out. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think what really helps Valentinus is that there were a lot of sympathetic readers of his work, both the so-called Valentinians. Uh, who continued the tradition after uh, Valentinus's death, but also because the so-called heresiologists, some of them de- detested Valentinus, but some of them actually thought he had some good ideas. And so when we look at the excerpts of Valentinus's writings in Clement of Alexandria, uh, or the excerpts of Valentinian writings in Origen, we see that they're using Valentinian writings the way that you would consult a scholarly book. Sometimes you agree, sometimes you disagree. Right. Um, and that seems to have been the way, at least in Alexandria, that Valentinus's legacy was, was, was carried on. Um, one little curious note about the death of Valentinus. Um, we don't really know when he died. Uh, we have this funny report that comes from Epiphanius that uh, I think has been misunderstood by a lot of, of scholars that he had a shipwreck. Uh, on, and in Cyprus, and that there he sort of um, he sort of fell into madness. But I think actually what's being said by Epiphanius is that he became shipwrecked in the faith, uh. Uh, which is from the New Testament. It's a it's an expression uh, from the pastoral epistles. And I think what what we can glean from that is that he may have made it to Cyprus, or maybe Epiphanius is just trying to bring his home homeland into the discussion. But then there's also, um, which I think is more compelling, this reference in Nag Hammadi in a writing that's very much anti-Valentinus, the testimony of truth. It includes Valentinus in a list of heretics, and it's fragmentary. There are some holes in it at a key part. But I think what's being said is that after Valentinus completed his course, meaning after he died, Mm -hmm. and so we might actually have a reference to the death of Valentinus in uh, the testimony of truth. Beyond that, we don't know. So we have a very influential thinker. So far, we don't know really anything about he, what he thinks, except that 
Clement and Oregon both think there's some good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And Irenaeus, Epiphanius, and all the heresiologues think he's the worst of the worst. He's a sort of arch-heretic. First of all, is it true that Justin Martyr, we have reason to think Justin Martyr had attacked Valentinus in his lost heresiological work? Yes. Uh, so this is a very complicated issue, and I do not speak for the majority of scholars on this, but I personally believe that Justin did not write this lost catalog against the heretics. If really? you look at his language, he's actually advertising it. He says, uh, there is with us uh, a catalog against the heresies which has been compiled. And then if you want to put the, the with us with the compiled, so compiled like by us, then the question is, is he claiming authorship or is he claiming that a pred- trustworthy predecessor of him wrote it? The simple point is he's, he's first and foremost advertising it. Right. And um, when you get the first preview of that in the first apology, there's no mention of Valentinus or the Valentinians. We have your Clements and Oregons, who are highly Hellenized, probably a bit cosmopolitan, Alexandrian, and esoteric themselves, Christians, who are using Valentinus in a kind of measured way, saying this is wrong, this is right. Then you have a tradition of heresiologues starting in the second century saying, no, not only is this wrong, it's the wrongest of the wrong. It's like the kind of touchstone of wrongness by which other wrong mm. schools of thought will be judged. Was, do you say that's right. a, fair, a fair assessment of the initial outsider reaction to Valentinus? Yeah, I would say that's true. I think also you have... Um with the invention of the notion of heresy, which takes place in the middle of the second century, the word changes from meaning just choice in a neutral sense to meaning heresy as we think of it now. What you also trigger when you think of somebody as a heretic is this idea that not only are they wrong, but they're demon-inspired. They're yeah. demonologically wrong. They, uh, it's, it's, it, there's no gray area anymore yeah. like there is with Origen and Clement. Mm. Let's talk about his thought. What is it that he was teaching that um, got people so hot under the collar? And before we talk about his thought, maybe we could just have a run-through of what we think he wrote. So before we even talk about Valentinianism, what do we think Valentinus himself wrote? um, And what of that survives? Right. And does anything survive attributed to him which might not be by him? Right. So what we have are a series of what we call fragments, but are really just excerpts of Valentinus' own writings uh, some of them almost certainly go back to Valentinus. Some of them may, and then others don't seem like they go back to him at all. They seem to be paraphrases of stereotypes about Valen- Valentinus's own thought. So those are the most reliable materials that we have, but there's not a lot of them, and they often break off you know, after a sentence or two. Beyond that, we know that he wrote this psalm book, which is referenced. So Tertullian's having an argument with this guy, um, about the nature of Christ, and this guy keeps appealing to Valentinus's psalm book, and uh, that makes Tertullian quite mad. It's also referenced in the Miratorian fragment and in other places, so this must have been a very popular um, writing. And then there's this uh, gospel of truth issue. Um, uh, a lot of scholars like to quietly believe that Valentinus composed the Gospel of Truth, which we discovered in Nagamadi. And it's, on the surface, plausible, I would say. Uh, the Gospel of Truth is 
incredibly well-crafted, must have been written, written by somebody like a Valentinus who was uh, well-versed in philosophy, but also in inter interpretation of the New Testament, had access to an abundance of texts. However, when we actually look at the evidence for Valentinus as the possible author of the Gospel of Truth, it's not really that strong. So it's sort of the similarity of a title, right? Or the initial yes. reason everyone said, ah, we finally found Valentinus's book when they found this text in Nagamadi is because this title is attributed to him in a heresiological work. Almost. Okay. So that requires the, the merging of two different reports. So Irenaeus tells us that the Valentinians have among them a gospel of truth. doesn't say Valentinus wrote it. He says Valentinians have among them a gospel of truth, which is something like a fifth gospel they have. And unfortunately, he doesn't go into the contents of it. He just says, but it agrees in no way with the Gospels. Right. So you can't do much with that. But then there's another report that Valentinus composed a Gospel. So when you conflate those two uncritically, you can come to the conclusion that Valentinus wrote the Gospel of Truth. There's a, an additional problem here is that the Gospel of Truth, what we call the Gospel of Truth from Nag Hammadi, doesn't actually have a title in the Codex. That's just the opening lines of the text. The gospel of truth is a joy for those who have received grace from the Father, etc. And so, while it is true that ancient books often receive their titles on the basis of the incipits, the opening lines of those works, is not necessarily true. So, it, there's not an airtight case that Valentinus composed the gospel of truth, and I, I personally think that he probably didn't, but there's enough little breadcrumbs out there for those who want to believe, largely privately believe that Valentine has composed it, that they can justify it more or less with these, with these sources. So if he didn't write the Gospel of Truth, do you still consider it perhaps a Valentinian work? I do. Okay, that's good. Gospel of Truth, what about the letter on immortality? Um, there are several of these fragments that can reliably go back to him, and uh, this annihilation of the realm of death, as Leighton calls it, would go back to him. I think Adam's faculty of speech or the boldness of speech uh, is a very important fragment uh, that we should talk about as well because it, I think, almost certainly goes back to Valentinus and kind of helps him, help us locate where he found inspiration for his own theology. Uh, and then the, the fragment that gets the most press is this summer harvest, Theros uh, fragment, which um, is the only part of his psalm book that we have. And it's this beautiful, unified vision of the created world um, that seems to stand at odds with some stereotypical notions of so-called Gnostics hating the world. Right. Um, so like Basilides, he's not a world uh, anti-cosmic pessimist, at least not in a straightforward way. No, he's, he seems to really embrace the world, embrace creation, and, and find a lot of joy in life. Brilliant. While we're talking about Bentley Leighton in a, in a peripheral way, and we're talking about Valentinus's influences in peripheral way, in Bentley Leighton's book, The Gnostic Scriptures, he paints a picture of Valentinus as a very important node in the history of Gnostic Christianity. Mm. And flowing into him, we have the, the Thomas literature, which we'll be talking about in another episode. So one strand of so-called Gnostic thought from, especially in popular in northern Mesopotamia and Syria, 
We have some kind of undefinable possible influence from Basilides, and we have it's sort of Alexandrian intellectual scene as well, early Christianity in Alexandria, which is also pretty undefinable because it's very, very mm. radically varied. And then we have the Gnostic myth, right. which plays a role in Valentinus. Now, I wonder if you could break down how you see the intellectual lineage of Valentinus. Obviously, it's a super complex question, but what do you think, before we get into what he kind of thinks the world is like, mm. talk a little bit about what kind of influences were going into his thought that he might have right. made use of. Yeah, I mean, I think just the general currents would be um, allegorical interpretation of biblical texts, most prominently the New Testament. Uh, Valentinus seems to have known the New Testament extremely well. And let's say what we can generally call middle platonic thought um, of the day, um, which was something of a popular philosophy that was had Stoic elements and Platonic elements sort of mixed in. And then I do think there was one particular early Christian theology from the second century, which Leighton calls the Gnostic myth, that was also influential in his own thought. And then I think with all those ingredients, there was just a tremendous amount of raw creativity in Valentinus' own brain. Well, let's get into what he taught then, what you think we can say about his, his teaching. Hmm. I think um, the sort of minimalist profile of him would be that he had a theory of the creation of uh, the, the first humans that actually resembles the theory that we find in the Apocryphon of John. And we have this fragment where we have angels who are creating Adam, and then Adam speaks with this sort of boldness, and the angels get freaked out because they didn't realize their creation was this powerful, and then they sort of stash him away somewhere. And that has been read by some scholars as very similar to what Philo, the Jewish uh, Alexandrian theologian, taught about the creation of Adam, uh, which was that um, God created, the, in basic terms, the good parts of the man, and he had his co-workers, these sort of co-working angels, create the lower bits, those bits that are subject to the passions, and just because God can't touch something like that. But I think what's different in this fragment um, of Valentinus is that God and the angels aren't communicating with each other the way that they do in Philo. There seems to be a discord there, which suggests there's some sort of rupture in heaven that puts a space between God and these lower angels um, where they're ignorant, they're not in on the plan, they're maybe not working with the consent of God, or at least uh, there's some sort of breakdown there. And that would put him a little bit closer to the, to the story that we have in the Apocryphon of John. So the Apocryphon of John, just as a reminder to people, this is a text that we have in several versions um, in the fullest form from Nag Hammadi, which um, is the most Gnostic, Gnostic text we have. It's it's got all the stuff that we think of as Gnostic, including this story of a emanatory or demiurgic creation in which something goes horribly wrong. In this case, it's with the Sophia. And the Sophia, who is a, a kind of low eon or emanation of unknown first god, basically her power goes into the world and eventually goes into humans. But it's a bit of a catastrophe. And so the first god has to send his emissary into 
this world. And that begins a process whereby the elect, those with gnosis, are able to return to the divine world, the pleroma, and God can kind of reassemble the pleroma. So this is the Gnostic myth. There's so many problems about talking about it as the Gnostic myth, but for now, let's just say that myth that we find in the Apocryphon of John in various versions is what we're talking about. And Valentinus will have known some early version of it. I suspect so, yeah. I think from that fragment, that's the, the, the best reading of it. Okay. If that's your definition of Gnostic, so some, some readings of Irenaeus, and I know you're going to have something to say about this, but let me put this out there. Some readings of Irenaeus say, okay, not everyone he's talking about are Gnostics, and there's been this kind of higgledy-piggledy, everyone he's attacking is a Gnostic approach, but that's been pretty much demolished by scholarship. But there are some people he is talking about who are Gnostics, and they even call themselves Gnostics. And these are the people who are often called the Barbaloites or the Sethians or or whatever, in scholarship. One ingredient in what he's doing is that story, is what the Barbaloites were all about. Yes, I mean, I have a radically different understanding of the those passages in Irenaeus and how the term Gnostic is being applied. So I would say that what Leighton would say, the influence of the Gnostic myth on uh, Valentinus, for me, is just the influence of one Christian group on another. Okay. Can you expand on that at all? Yeah, so basically the idea that the the Barbeloites or the so-called Sethians were a self-identifying group of Gnostics and that they are so-called cl- the classical Gnostics, uh, which uh, you, you hear um, quite a bit. I mean, a lot of the um, people who studied with um, Bentley Layton, included da- including David Brackey and uh, I think you just spoke to Dylan Burns, who also holds this view. We disagree on this point. Um, the idea is is that in Irenaeus, book one of Against the Heresies, we have this reference. He says that Valentinus adapted his teachings from the school called Gnostic, which we will discuss you know, in a bit, basically. So what Leighton and others do is they take the school called Gnostic to mean a school, not a heresy. It's the same word. It's the hieresis, right? Mm. It's, it's a technical school, and called means they called themselves. It doesn't say called themselves, it just says called Gnostic. And then the second move is to then say, okay, he does that in chapter 11. Where then does he talk about the Gnostics? And then that's when we go to the so-called Barbeloites, who are mentioned at the tail end of this long list of heretics that starts with Simon the Magician. And so it culminates in this uh, discussion of the... Um, the so-called Sethians, the Barbaloites, and, and it, that section starts with, and from them a multitude of Gnostics have sprung up. And, uh, and so because some of the material in that, that chunk in Book 1 is very similar to parts of the Apocryphon of John, then the Apocryphon of John and anything that's theologically, ideologically like it, then can be put into one group, that's the so-called Gnostic sect. Okay, that's the way it's, it's being read by most scholars now. I go back to that and I think, okay, well, there are some problems here. School called Gnostic doesn't mean that they called themselves that. There are ways to say they call themselves that in Greek, and those, that's not used there. Also, it, it seems to me like you could just translate it as heresy. I mean, the name, you know, heresy is used as a common notion throughout the book. So if you translate it as the heresy called Gnostic, it changes your outlook completely. And then um, 
there are some references outside of Book One of Against the Heresies that talk about Basilides as a Gnostic. They're in books two through four. And what Leighton and others have to do is dismiss those right. as non-technical uses. But actually, if you bring them all, put them all on the table, you can actually read it coherently. Uh, and that's that anyone who's an ideologically descendant of Simon the Magician is part of the school called Gnostic. And who calls them that? People who disagree with them. Yeah. It's the street name for anyone who's a heretic. Now, what, what I think is a nice sort of... Um, a nice bow to tie at the end of this argument is that the exact same polemical strategy is used in the second century among the um, medical doctors. And so what you find is that there's the artificial creation of a logike hierosis, a rationalist school by one sect of doctors. And they do that so that they can consolidate all their rivals with all their different opinions, all their different practices, and then dismiss them in mass. Mm. And I think that's exactly what's going on uh, in Irenaeus. Uh, he's a clever guy. So are there people who claim to be Gnostic? Yes. Are there people who claim Gnosis? Absolutely. But is there a formal self-identifying Gnostic sect? Absolutely not. Okay. We know where you stand on that. So, <laughs> but you do think there were people who called themselves Gnostic. Yeah. Yeah. Just the way you would call yourself an intellectual today. Like if you're a, a Christian and you say, I'm an intellectual, it doesn't mean you're part of an intellectual sect. Got it. You just think of yourself as a, you know, a smarty. Right. <laughs> okay. Let's get back to Valentinus's teachings now. Mm -hmm. He does seem to think that, well, so he has a demiurgic creation for... To, it would seem that way, yeah. So with multiple levels of reality kind of flowing forth from the buthos, this sort of unknown first principle, first god. None of that is in his fragments, though. No, really. So that's all heresiological. Good to know. Yeah, I mean, it could be that he knew that. And some of that does come also from the gospel of truth. Okay. Um, but the, all we have of his thought from his fragments about cosmogony or the creation of the universe is that angel uh, creation of, of Adam and his bold speech fragment. Okay. Um, so on that super minimalist reading, I'm just talking about Valentinos himself and not about his school. We know that creation isn't just God creates the world, boom, let there be light. There's there's a more kind of middle platonizing approach to this because mm. we know that the, the immaterial first principle cannot touch matter. There has to be something right. between. Um, and we know that there's this discourse of something went wrong or something... There's a disjunct yeah. between the first principle and our world that we live in. What else can we say about his thought, would you say? It's stuff that I really, and we can say some, we can say more, but it's stuff that I really enjoy, but might be kind of boring to others. You know, he really cared about um, care for the soul. And he has this one fragment where he compares the soul to like a, a motel room. Uh, where people, like these demons, just pass through it, and they tear up the room, they dig up the floors, they, they sully the whole thing, they don't care. And so, you know, he, his, the point of this is that you really need to make sure that you protect your soul, and you mitigate the influence of demons, um, because it's something that can be um, very easily, very easily uh, um, soiled by demonic influence. And so I, I think that's part of his teaching. Do we know anything more about what he thinks demons are 
I think he would probably have the sort of Jewish apocalyptic notion of demons as sort of fallen demigods or something. I, 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 off the top of my head, I can't think of an instance in which he uses the term neutrally. Right. I'm just thinking when I'm reading this kind of material, my initial assumption is going to be there's something to do with astral fate. Right. They have to do with the planets. They have to do with be existing in this world. They're associated with matter, the elements, mm -hmm. and the stars. But if we don't have direct evidence for that, it's not fair to assume that. It's a common enough view that I don't think it would be out of place to think Valentinus may have held a view like that. But we can't uh, say for sure. As far as I can recall, I don't think we can. So on your minimalist reading of Valentinus, we don't know that much about what he thought, really, do we? That's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I go, I, I have these conversations with scholars all the time when we're reading Valentinus or reading a Valentinian text together, and, and the others in the room will just assume that there is a Valentinian Sophia myth in the background of these texts. And, and I think in some cases, yeah, you can tell there is. Like, for example, in the Tripartite Tractate, there is clearly something like the classical Valentinian myth of Sophia's fall, it's just that Sophia has been replaced with the word logos. But in texts like the Gospel of Truth, absolutely not. We didn't mention the tripartite tractate, actually, when mm. we were talking about works. But uh, maybe, we can, maybe we can discuss that under the subject, the next subject I'd like to talk to you about, which is Valentinianism. Mm -hmm. So if you want to give your five-minute super stripped-down introduction to Valentinianism and what it was in antiquity, how would you do that? This is a tricky one. There, it's hard because there are writings that clearly seem to cluster together and use themes we think of as Valentinian, either because they show up in Valentinus's own writings or because they line up more or less with the anti-heretical reports about Valentinian thought. But none of them call themselves Valentinian, and none of them mention Valentinus. In fact, if I recall correctly, there's only one mention of Valentinus in all of the Nag Hammadi writings, and that's in the Testimony of Truth, where he's labeled a heretic. Uh, and so what we have to do is a sort of um, Wittgensteinian family resemblance argument. Uh, to, to, so there are texts that undeniably go together. Um, the Gospel of Truth and the Tripartite Tractate. They have a close relationship. And then there are texts that use Valentinian terminology, um, like, for example, the Treatise on the Resurrection, that seems to me to be Valentinian as well. And then there are texts that are written by people known to have been Valentinians. These are outside of Nag Hammadi. So, for example, Heraclion's Commentary on John, uh, or um, uh, Ptolemy's Letter to Flora, uh, or uh, um, the excerpts of Theodotus, although that's a slightly different case. What about later teachers who sort of were very influential on their own account? I'm thinking of Bardaisan of Edessa, that many people associate with Valentinus. Yeah, Bardaisan is, uh, I don't think a Valentinian, I, I don't include him in the Valentinian corpus because the only reason we think he's Valentinian is because Eusebius tells us he was and then kind of changed his mind. And I don't know what Eusebius knows. Uh, I, I'm not a you know, I, I haven't worked through the book of the laws and countries, but one that's not written by Bardizon is written by a student of his, uh, and uh, two, it's it's Syriac, and I don't read Syriac, so I, I don't take Eusebius that seriously there. Yeah, 
well, we have a good reasons for not taking him seriously as a an accurate reporter of history, that's for sure. Right, right. But tell us about the Valentinians. Having said that, right. first of all, would you say that it's fair to say, based on what you're saying, that Valentinianism is just strictly a scholarly construction or a heresiological construction that then becomes a scholarly construction? Right. I think it changes over time. And I'm going to say something a little, uh, I have not published on this, and I think the specialists who listen to this will, will push back quite a bit. But I think by the fourth century, yeah, I think we have something like Valentinianism. We have a Valentinian church that's mentioned that's burned down, for example. That's an institution, right, at that point. Uh, that's a, a sect, a community of its own. We probably have a transition toward that in the third century. In the second century, I think we have a host of people who find Valentinus, as well as other teachers, to be compelling. And what the heresiologists do is they hail them as Valentinian on the basis of their willingness to read and work, on, work with Valentinus, uh, or, or, or to use his works. And we see this, if we, just a little example of this, is um, in Tertullian's debate over the nature of Christ with, uh, I think his name is Alexander. And Alexander is appealing to Valentinus' psalm book. So we include Alexander among the Valentinians. But maybe he's just using Valentinus' psalm book, right? So you can see how easy it is to hail somebody as Valentinian in the second, you know, early third century, simply on the basis of their admiration for Valentinus. But so I think that's kind of where we're at in the second century. Third century, we probably do have the emergence of a kind of sect because once you're called something enough, you start to take that identity on. Right. Right. And then fourth century, there's a short-lived Valentinian community, and then they seem to disappear pretty quickly. That's where I fall on all of this. Okay. Cool. So getting into speculative territory, but intelligent speculative territory. So I think maybe the only other essential thing to talk about under the rubric of Valentinus Valentinianism that we haven't touched on at all yet are the Nag Hammadi texts and what's mm -hmm. in them. The ones that are, which, which I gather you do not necessarily think are Valentinian. So we have the gospel of truth. Right. I, I do think they are Valentinian uh, because they have this family resemblance. Okay. But what that means in terms of social history, I'm not sure. So you don't think, for example, that the gospel of truth that we find in Nag Hammadi is uh, Ipsissima Werba of Valentinus. He wrote I it. don't think so. I would love it if he signed it, but I, I just don't find the evidence compelling. But what is in that text? Can you just give us a, a rundown of what that text tells us? Because suddenly now we're in a richly detailed world of uh, mythology and theology, and there's something really juicy going on. Yeah, so the Gospel of Truth is an extraordinarily, from my perspective, extraordinarily compelling early Christian homily on the gospel. It's sermonic. It's in, in, in the way it delivers things. And it, whoever wrote it clearly knows the New Testament extremely well and is engaged in what I've called a mythological exegesis or mythological interpretation of certain passages in the New Testament. So you have this myth. It's, people like to read this Valentinian Sophia myth into it. But it's not there. Uh, Sophia is only mentioned once in the Gospel of Truth, and there she's just a faculty of God. She's God's wisdom. She's not a separate entity that did something wrong and now has to repent. But the myth in the Gospel of Truth, on its own terms, is quite compelling. The fundamental problem is how do we get from the perfection of God 
to the obvious imperfection of the created world in our human bodies, right? And so the way that it solves this problem is incredible. So God is so big, so abundant. In fact, you can, you can really only define him by what he's not, right? This sort of apophatic theology that we see in, in Platonism. And because of that, what's called the entirety, the all, which I take to be like the aggregate of the souls of humanity pre-embodiment, are just floating in him. And even though they're in him, they think they've lost him because he's so big. And so they, as they're like looking for him, they start to experience passions. They start to become fearful. And those passions seem to, it's a little hard to read the text here, but seem to morph into this entity called error. And error then takes advantage of this sort of enfeebled state of the entirety, this sort of passionate suffering. And then she creates the material world to catch them and to sort of basically trap them in it. So that that's not the Valentinian Sophia myth. That's something very different. So where's it coming from? My theory is it's coming from a very close reading of the beginning of John's Gospel. So we have all things come from him. Okay, so the all, same word, is from him. Right? They're, they're like in him. Uh, but then you have this weird thing, too, where uh, nobody has ever seen God at any time. Okay, that's a rat. How do you have the all in him, but that they've never seen him? Because he's so damn big, right? He's just right. so incredible. And, and then we have uh, this darkness that's referenced in John's prologue that seems to pre-exist. And this darkness is a sort of menacing force. And that maps on nicely to error in her realm of darkness. So then that sets the stage for salvation, which is the sun coming, right? Because he has he's the one in John's prologue who's the only one who's seen him. But the only begotten son of God who's in the bosom of the father, he has explained to him, right? So then what God does is he sends down his son to tell people in the world where they came from and then initiates this reuniting with the father, so that's the essential message of the gospel of truth. I so think. the sun in this reading of John isn't the same thing as the logos. It is. It's just that the him pronoun uh, is, so all things came about through him. We assume that's the logos when we read John's prologue. They're saying, no, the him is the father. Got it. And these things were all up for debate in the second century. Irenaeus, he gets really upset about this. He's like, all things means all things, you know, created and, you know, it's all things completely. And then he has to appeal to Colossians to make that argument. It's precisely because Valentinians were saying, no, that's not what all things mean. All things uh, is, uh, you know, the souls, aggregate of souls, pre you know, whatever. So I, I think it's born out of a very careful reading of John's prologue. Interesting. So that's not only kind of what happens in the work, but, but at least one theory on um, the exegetical origins of this work, the, the impetus yeah. for, for composing it. I love yeah. it. Anyone interested in the history of Western esotericism needs to, of course, go back and read the prologue to John because it stands out completely from anything else in the rest of the Gospels. And mm -hmm. it's just so ripe for esoteric interpretation. In fact, it's impossible to interpret unless you start reading stuff into it. Otherwise, you know, right. what is this Logos? Um, what does it mean it was there at the beginning with God and, you know, all this stuff? It, it just, right. It's not self-explanatory in the slightest. Right. So that's the Gospel of Truth from Nag Hammadi, which we have in Coptic. What about the Tripartite Tractate? Oh, gosh. Uh, 
The tripartite tractate is a monster. Um, it's one of, I guess we could call it one of the earliest systematic theologies, Christian systematic theologies, in that it attempts to account for everything from creation to the final restoration, and it does so in a systematic fashion. Um, and it's divided into these three parts, which is why we call it the tripartite tractate, or as the Europeans call it, the tractatus tripartitus. I call it tritrac. And it has these little uh, actual scribal divisions in the work, but it doesn't have a title, and we don't know who wrote it. There have been some theories. Heraklion may have written it. I don't think that's compelling. We don't know. Um, Heraklion, whoever, a, a teacher who features in heresiological lists as a later Valentinian, right? Right, and we know that he did compose the, this commentary on the Gospel of John that Origen uses. So it, it starts off at the very beginning, uh, and what we have uh, unfolding is this sort of father-son church triad. And then we have emerging from this is the Logos, who actually structurally plays the role of Sophia in this classic Valentinian myth, that he accidentally introduces uh, deficiency into the perfect heavenly realm and then initiates a series of uh, unfortunate events that culminates in the creation of the world. And... It's interesting to think about why Sophia was changed to Logos, because it seems clear that this author knows that it was Sophia who was said to have done this. Part of it could be the late date of the Tripartite Tractate. We, we think it's a third century composition, unlike the Gospel of Truth, which we think is second century. And it could show an emerging awareness of the sort of trinity, that there's the Sophia figure is not as compelling as she was in the second century. Now that certain branches of Christians are becoming more Trinitarian in their theologies, and maybe it's a patriarchal shift. We don't know. And then we have, I mean, just every, everything is discussed, the creation of Adam, the um, tripartite division of humanity into pneumatic, psychic, and hillic, or spirit people, soul people, and matter people. And then that sort of, the way that the author maps those three types onto humanity changes throughout the text. It's not consistent, but it's clear that the author of the Tripartite Tractate likes to think about things in threes. So one example is there, you, you are one of three types of people depending upon how you respond to the advent of the Savior. When he comes to the world, do you immediately rush to him like a spirit person? Do you uh, immediately run away from him and reject him like a matter person? Or do you take some time and eventually get there? like the, the psychic or soul person who's in between. And then we have also this, this tripartite division mapped on to uh, different groups of thinkers. So we have the Greek philosophers are thought of as being the material people. And then we have the contemporary interpreters, Jewish interpreters of the Hebrew scriptures as in the middle. They get some things right and some things wrong. And I think what's interesting about that is it shows that the author of the Tripartite Tractate, at least in theory, was in dialogue with contemporary Jewish interpreters of Scripture. I don't know how real that would have been if it would have been face-to-face or just through texts. Um, and that the biggest concern is making sure that his community is not confused as Greek philosophy, um, which suggests that they probably would have been very easily confused for philosophers at the time. So then, it, And then it ends in this sort of final return to the Father and some rituals that are involved in that process, too. Um, but it's a massive systematic theology. 
You talked earlier about Valentinus being himself, going back to the man himself, being very concerned with, for, with care of the soul. And do we mm-hmm. have any hints about what kind of ritual he might have been interested in? Or what, what did Valentinus, as a second century Christian, do? What were his cultic practices? Do we have any evidence there at all? I don't think we do. I mean, I think it's there for those who are who prefer to conflate various sources from different time periods. You know, you could say that he he probably practiced some sort of uh, redemption ritual, which is a series of, of codes that you or or of sayings that you say on your deathbed when you want to ascend to heaven, or that there was a baptism or a sort of anointing ritual, or there was this bridal chamber ritual where you're united with a, a pair. But none of that, as far as I can recall, can co- comes from the genuine writings of Valentinus. That's all later development. Hmm. So what I would say is that, you know, I actually kind of used uh, Justin as a model for what Valentinus's circle would have looked like. Um, and we can go into that in more detail. Uh, but I think it would have probably involved um, baptism, study of scripture, prayer, um, and probably for the more advanced students, debating the sort of finer points of interpretation like John's prologue. One last thing I'd like to ask you, speaking of the finer points of interpretation, do we have any evidence vis-a-vis esotericism in Valentinos himself? So um, the reason I ask this is because there are these reports that he traces his sort of teaching lineage to this mysterious person called Theudas, who is a hearer or disciple of... Paul. Paul. Of Paul, thank you. So creating a, a lineage that's like mainline straight to, back to Jesus, basically. Not, not quite, because mm-hmm. Paul didn't actually know Jesus, but he encountered Jesus, and he's a very important Christian author. So you mm-hmm. go, vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul, Theudas, Valentinos. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Now, with Basilides, we have a similar claim, just a, f- a few decades earlier than Valentinus and coming from the same Alexandrian milieu. And Basilides is on record in Clement, who is a very sympathetic witness to him, as having said, we have an esoteric teaching. There is an esoteric sort of kernel, a very small minority within Christianity who are the ones who really get it. And that the reason I know this, the reason you can trust me, is because I have this oral teaching that goes back mm-hmm. to the apostles that mm-hmm. um, is not written down, but you can. But I'm going to tell you about it, right? So he's an right. esotericist on a number of levels. He has an esoteric wisdom tradition that he's part of, and he teaches that we, the followers of my teaching, are a kind of esoteric elite within Christianity. Do we have right. anything parallel with Valentinus? Not with Valentinus directly, but we do have the report of Ptolemy, in, at the tail end of his letter to Flora, which is really interesting. So Ptolemy's letter to Flora, he's there's this uh, wealthy, well-educated woman who's expressing some interest in learning more about Ptolemy, an alleged Valentinian, uh, Ptolemy's theology and his community. And so what he does is he writes her this, this introductory letter that teaches her how to break up the Hebrew Bible into different parts and some parts are no longer relevant, uh, and some parts are relevant and even more relevant now. So he gives her all this information. And then at the very end, he says, basically, if you have questions about first principles, right, about the metaphysics, uh, you'll get these in time if you're deemed worthy of the apostolic tradition, which we too have by means of succession. And so what you could do is you could just 
snap that on as an extension to this Paul Theodos Valentinus chain, then you add Ptolemy. And I think that's certainly possible. I think we have enough evidence that Ptolemy thought of himself as a disciple of Valentinus that I, Ptolemy probably has something like that in mind. So you could construct this esoteric chain that goes back to Paul. And Paul is a really good pick because the Valentinians love Paul. They're, the, the division into three different groups is coming from Paul's writings to the church in Corinth. And then also Paul has this fantastic passage in 1 Corinthians where he says, and we speak of a Sophia, a Sophia not known but hidden, uh, so that the archons would not know, right? But we just translate it differently. But if you just read the Greek, that's what he's saying. It's very much like the Valentinian Sophia myth, or at least it seems to be intimating it. So they love Paul. So that's entirely plausible. However, what I would say is that that is not unique activity in the second century. This uh, the so-called succession of bishops that goes back to Peter, that we, we'd have to call similarly an esoteric tradition, because these lists of bishops going all the way back to Peter come about at the hands of Hegesippus uh, and Irenaeus in the 170s, 180s, and they're trying to do exactly the same thing, saying that there is a rule of truth that we have, a set of presuppositions you have to bring with you to the scriptures before you even start interpreting them. And how do we know that our rule is true? Because we got it from Peter, who got it from, or we got it from, you know, Anicetus, who got it from Sixtus, who got it from whatever. They're all making it up. They're all throwing down these anchors. And I think in that respect, the two in Ptolemy's letter to Flora seems to show his knowledge that everybody's doing this. We also have it. And what's interesting and this is a bit of a side note here, but it pertains to the Gospel of Judas, is that Judas seems to be upset that everybody's doing this. And his response is that the apostles are idiots. Why on earth would you want to you know, base your authority on some sort of lineage back to these fools? Because Judas was bad, but the others were even worse. And so actually, I think the Gospel of Judas is in dialogue with these attempts by Valentinians, by members of Irenaeus' church, by Basilides to actually throw down these apostolic anchors. On that note, a note whereby <laughs> the construction of esoteric wisdom lineages is being used not only by those who would later be called heretics, but those who would later become the winning orthodox team. I will say, Jeff Smith, thank you very much for speaking to us and stay esoteric. <laughs> I will. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.